gospel lesson, the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to St. Luke. Once while Jesus was standing beside the lake of Gennesaret, and the crowd was pressing in on him to hear the word of God, he saw two boats there at the shore of the lake. The fishermen had gone out of them and were washing their nets. He got into one of the boats, the one belonging to Simon, and asked him to put out a little way from the shore. And then he came down and taught the crowds from the boat. When he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into the deep water and let down your nets for a catch. And Simon answered, Master, we've worked all night long but have caught nothing. Yet, if you say so, I will let down the nets. When they had done this, they caught so many fish that their nets were beginning to break, and so they signaled their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled both boats so that they began to sink. But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Go away from me, Lord, for I'm a sinful man. He and all who were with him were amazed at the catch of fish that they had taken. And so also were James and John, sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. Then Jesus said to Simon, Do not be afraid. From now on, you will be catching people. When they brought their boats to shore, they left everything and followed him. Grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. The gospel of the Lord. You may be seated. I was in Houston for a couple days this past week visiting some friends from seminary. First time I'd been at an airport or sat on an airplane since New Year's Day 2020. And I'm not too proud to admit that I was a little nervous about flying in the midst of the Omicron scare, but I mean, we'd bought the tickets before all this had happened. We went to visit our friend Mike, who'd resigned from his position at First Christian Church Houston in April last spring. and finding some challenges, uh, looking for a new job. So even though it probably doesn't, it wasn't the best time to travel, especially given the dire predictions about the coming ice storm, we decided we still needed to go down and see Mike. Now, as I was sitting in the airport visualizing all the trillions of grubby little viruses floating around in the air trying to defeat my N95 mask. I thought about what a strange time it is we live in. And everything feels a little less certain right now, doesn't it? 
of course, right now can include all of the last six years or so. But I mean, even so, the world of late feels, if not more disrupted, then at least a full-on continuation of the disruption we felt down in our bones for some time now. I mean, we're experiencing inflation in the ways that we haven't really for decades. The store shelves are often empty. We, we still have to wear masks when we leave our homes. This time last year, we were convinced that the vaccine rollout meant that we'd soon seen the tail end of COVID. But here we are, still wondering when all this is going to end and how many people will get sick and or die before it's all over. Not only that, it's, it's 2022, and we're hearing about book burnings in the United States. Seeing side-by-side -side pictures of fundamentalists in Mount Juliet, Tennessee, and Nazis in Berlin, Germany, throwing books on a pyre. And these are many of the same people who had just recently banned the time-honored graphic novel Mouse from the eighth grade curriculum in McMinn County, Tennessee. Apparently not seeing the irony of banning a book about, you know, the Holocaust. You, 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 can't, you can't make this stuff up. Every day there seems to be some new revelation about previous plots to overthrow the government. White uh, supremacy is on the rise in did I mention 2022? Many black people feel no safer in their own country now than they did 60 years ago, as the death of yet another young black man at the hands of Minneapolis police clearly shows. And in our own state legislature, a supermajority seeking legislation that would tie the hands of teachers when it comes to what they teach in school and school administrators as they strive to keep kids safe while providing a good education. Introduced legislation that would prevent charitable organizations from raising money to pay cash bail. Charitable organizations like, oh, say, <clears throat> Douglas Boulevard Christian Church, which we've done. Now, I know I've said this quite a bit, but the world feels like it's got one foot dangling over the edge of the abyss, doesn't it? The people in churches all over are feeling the same kind of potential chaos. So as preacher types <clears throat> do, as we roam the streets of Houston, my buddies and I start talking about how our churches were doing, not to mention the state of the larger church. You may have heard that uh, the church has seen better days. It's, it's true. The pandemic has kept us apart for so long. There's a fear that once we're in the clear, people are, will have moved on from church. You know, some found something better to do with their time. Heck, it's an open question that whether once this pandemic is over, there will be many churches still left, not, you know, moved on, or if not moved on, then bought a cemetery plot and finally accepted the writing on the wall. And it's not just because people are staying away. I mean, finances are tenuous in so many congregations. Ministers are leaving the ministry in record numbers because of burnout. You've heard of the great resignation, right? People are climbing all over each other to leave their jobs, to find something new, searching for more money, more respect, more exciting jobs, something that doesn't suck their soul. 
CNBC reports that almost one quarter of the workforce will look to change careers in 2022. 23%. So as we sat drinking coffee, my buddy Mike said, as though it sort of just occurred to him, I'm pretty sure I'm part of the great resignation. But see, I mean, here's the thing. Lest we think this trauma is only a problem for smaller churches, I want to make sure that we understand that even huge churches are finding the path forward much less clear. While we were riding around Houston on the way to breakfast, we drove past Lakewood Church, you know, Joel Osteen's church. And for whatever reason that makes me do such things, I said, I'd like to see that place. I mean, they bought the compact center where the Houston Rockets used to play, and they converted it into a church. I mean, what does that even look like? So we stopped. Unfortunately, all the doors were locked, but as we got ready to go, my, my, my buddy Mark saw a buzzer with a speaker on it, and so he pushed it. And Mark told the disembodied voice that crackled out that we were from out of town, and, you know, if it was all right, we'd kind of like take a look at the building. And, the head of church security, he, he actually wore a badge, told us that we could walk around the upper level, but that the sanctuary was being prepared for the young adult worship service that evening. Well, that's fine. So we went in and we walked around. We s snuck into a few bathrooms and pounded on the walls. See if, like the plumber who right before Christmas found $600,000 in the bathroom wall there, we we too might find a little extra offering laying around. I mean, $600,000, $600,000. Of course, three ministers in somebody else's church building have questions, I mean, especially if the church belongs to Joel Osteen. I mean, how do they take care of parking? Well, they have an arrangement with a parking garage. How big is the sanctuary? 16.7 thousand seats. How many people attend worship? Well, said Richard, the church security officer with a badge and a serious mustache. Before the pandemic, we'd fill the sanctuary pretty regularly for most services. And when we first returned to in-person worship, attendance was pretty good. But now we don't fill it really for any service. And he looked a little defeated as he spoke. I said, well, all right, so before the pandemic, y'all used to fill the 16.7,000 seat sanctuary on a Wednesday night for young adult services? He said, yep, sure did. I said, wow, that's, and that's really that's pretty impressive. How many do you expect to be there tonight? Probably 2,000. Unable to resist, I said, well, clearly y'all have given up. You're not even trying anymore, are you? You know, it struck me at that point that nobody really gets through all of this unscathed. Nobody. I mean, nobody gets a free Disney World jump the line pass in the apocalypse. And for the past few years, heck, I'd argue for past six years, it has often felt like we've been living on the brink of the end of the world. Not always, but it's kind of this low buzz that feels like it's always at the edge. 
of my conscious mind. The people to whom Luke was writing toward the end of the first century, they understood uncertainty. They too thought they were on the edge of the new eschaton, the new age. They expected Jesus' return at any moment, especially since things had gotten kind of dicey between their Jewish cousins and the Roman Empire. I mean, only a few years had passed since Rome had wiped out Jerusalem, destroying the Jewish temple back in 70 CE because the Jews had gotten a little bit too peevish for Caesar's taste. Because they claimed the same family tree, the early church lived in constant fear that they might be next up on the Roman hit list. Because they remembered under Nero they had been. Life felt really tenuous, like like chaos might leak through any moment. When we read the story of Jesus hopping into Simon Peter's boat, who was then a complete stranger, it kind of feels like the beginning of a good fishing story, right? Interesting, but otherwise just sort of simple scene setting for one of Jesus' big miracles. Jesus, followed by a crowd, wandered up to a couple of fishermen, strangers, really, and he said, hey, you guys launch out into the water so that I can speak to all these people? And with a good deal more grace than I would have been able to muster after having been up all night working third shift at the family business, Simon Peter said, okay. Now, after fishing, Jesus said to Uh, Finishing, excuse me, after finishing, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Tell you what, why don't you put out into the deep water, let down your nets for a catch? And by this time, extraordinarily weary, I would think, Simon Peter said, Look, pal, we've been out all night and we've caught nothing. I mean, if it's all the same to you, we'd rather just head in, get an egg McMuffin, and toddle off to bed. But if you say so, all right, we'll head out one last time. Telling you though, we've already been out there and there's nothing worth catching. So Jesus and his tired new friends headed out into the deep end of the pool. Lo and behold, they cast their nets one last time, but this time the nets were so full that they couldn't pull them in by themselves. They had to ask another boat to come and give them a hand. And so after this big catch, <clears throat> Simon Peter fell on his knees and said, Go away from me, Lord, for I'm a sinful man. Now, I'm not entirely sure what one thing has to do with the other, but, I mean, there you go. But then Jesus told the four fishermen that they shouldn't be afraid because they'll be fishing for people from now on. I'm pretty sure that brought a round of furtive glances, shrugged shoulders with The four fishermen thinking, you know, I don't even think people are legal for resale. But let's be honest, I I I think we have to acknowledge that this whole fish for people metaphor is problematic. Not least because it suggests that new followers of Jesus ought to be caught and not persuaded. Not least because it suggests that these people's 
free will and autonomy would be cast aside in the face of new disciples dropping nets into the deep water to bring people up on board. But, but, but before we torture the whole fishing for people metaphor to death, we had to point out that what really is taking place, what it really means is that the apostles would be seeking new people to follow Jesus as he establishes his new realm, that they would be casting the nets, the, the nets broadly, deeply, places where abundance is the watchword, casting them in the deep water. Now, in this metaphor, the deep water is doing a lot of the heavy lifting. What do I mean by that? Well, in Greek, the word for deep, the deep, is bathos. It means the depths. Ironically, bathos is a common uh, literary term used when a writer or a poet falls in, into con inconsequential and absurd metaphors, <laughs> descriptions, or ideas in an effort to be emotional or passionate. But in the Septuagint, that is the, the Greek translation of the Hebrew scriptures that would have been used by the first century Palestinian Jews, bathos is used as a reference, as Ron Allen reminds us, of the primordial sea, the deep. This, this whole primordial sea image is used in the creation story in Genesis. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was a formless void, and darkness covered the face of the deep. The deep waters, the primordial sea, was viewed in the ancient world as the waters of chaos, where the sea demons lived. So the image of creation, then, is God sort of dipping God's elbows into the disorder of the deep waters and forming creation out of that deep cosmic cauldron of chaos. So when Jesus tells Simon Peter to cast his net into the deep, Luke is masterfully pulling his readers into a story that they already have some understanding about. In a hostile Roman Empire where they might be next up on the menu, they're living in chaos after all. But what happens after Jesus' new followers drop their nets in the deep waters of chaos, even though they're tired and the whole thing seems pointless? They find abundance. For Luke's readers, with the Roman Empire breathing down their necks, dangling their feet over the edges of the abyss, the apostles' willingness to fish in the deep waters shows the way forward. In other words, with the world sort of spiraling out of control, the deep waters of chaos aren't a barrier to the new realm of God. They're the gate through which Jesus' followers must pass to find the abundance that God has promised. And no less for us. The promise of plenty in the new world God is creating isn't available to us after we've checked out of the current world and its uncertainty and then taken residence, taken up residence in another more stable home. The promise of enough lives 
in the very heart of the chaos we find ourselves in right now. Jesus' followers aren't looking for deliverance out of this world, but for directions into the very dark and grubby center of it. But more simply, the future for us lies not in surviving the disorder of this world with its pandemic panics and its cultural battles and its economic uncertainties, but in doing a full-on belly flop into the untamed mess at the very beating heart of it. The unstable world that we're experiencing right now, therefore, apparently isn't something that we must just survive, waiting to find life on the other side. It's the place we're going to find the life God is so excited to give us right now. Now, does that mean we won't find death and hatred and fear in the deep waters? No. It just means that we'll never find anything but that if we settle for standing over the abyss, looking at the horror and despair, waiting for something new to come along. See, to find the abundance God promises in the new realm, we're going to have to make peace with lowering ourselves into the deep waters. Apparently, that's where all the best people are. Amen. Thanks again for tuning in to the Douglas Boulevard Christian Church Podcast. If you liked what you heard, please rate the podcast on iTunes, retweet the link, or just tell your friends. Godspeed until next time on the Douglas Boulevard Christian Church Podcast.